Good evening. I am Rob, and I am old. It's an old joke. I always say it, but it kind of warms me up. So, you know, it's really good to be here. And the best thing about being up here is that I don't have to wear a mask. So that's kind of cool. So I, I feel for you. Um, I feel like when I'm wearing a mask, I'm probably sucking in more CO2 than I ought to, and I'm falling asleep. So, you know, if you're, you're out there after a long day, you're sucking in more CO2 than you should, I get it. All right, don't worry about it. Um, God, tr I trust in God, and I trust that his word will be delivered to all, even when they are asleep. So, yeah. Um, again, it is good to be here. It is good to be with you. And it is good that we might be able to come here tonight and to hear the word of God. Um, and as much as I might be up here preaching to you about the word of God, I realize that it also applies to me. There is nothing more humbling um, for a, a, a teacher um, as I go through the message to realize, oh, I need to learn that. Oh, I need to learn that. Oh, I've got a really good example from my own life for that and so forth. So it is a blessing for me to be here, to be instructed by God as I might be able to instruct you as well. So. With that said, let's launch into this evening. So the architect, the architects assured the engineers who in turn assured and instructed the workers who in turn reported back their status. And the architects informed the owners of the company that the journey would be safe and that all would be well, that the, the very um, pinnacle of luxury would be achieved. And the owners, of course, advertised this, told people that they could take the journey together and it would be first class and that they would be safe and it would be fast. So the public, trusting in these people, trusting in the owners, trusting in the architects, the engineers, and the workers, boarded the ship. And of course, we all know over 100 years ago, that ship did not make its maiden voyage, did not complete it. And the HMS Titanic sunk to the bottom of the sea, taking with it many lives. It proved in the end to not be safe, although it was luxurious. And the reality is that what happened on that night when the ship hit the iceberg was much different than the expectations of those who professed everything to the contrary. What they understood was much different than the reality that they would encounter. And that what they understood about their own abilities and their own accomplishments was very much different than reality that would slap them in the face. Many suffered. If they knew, if they understood what would happen to their ship that very night for the, uh, Years ago, as they were going through the process of designing and building the ship, would they have acted differently? Perhaps. Now, I'm not here to argue um, or to state one way or the other what happened um, with the Titanic, whether it was the fault of one person or another. But at the end of the day, the expectations and reality of the people in charge of the ship and the passengers was much different than what really happened. And in a like way, as we, we know, as we go through Romans and our study of Romans, our expectations, our understanding of how we live our lives may very well be much different than the truth and the reality of what happens. And that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. And again, as I've said, 
as I've approached this message and as I was studying, I realized that I myself was relying too much on my own expectations of what was possible and not enough of what was going on in reality. And so with that, let's open this time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you just for this evening. We thank you again for your word that speaks to each one of us, that cuts us to the bone, and that it teaches us what you ask us to be. And we ask, Lord, that your word would transform us, give us ears to hear, and lives that wish to respond. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Tonight, we complete our first part of our journey through Romans. And before we swing into our summer series of Proverbs, I have to say it's been quite a journey, right? It's been a long three chapters. And as we recap, remember that Paul goes through a huge amount of material, right? He starts off basically with letting us all know that the Romans is about the demonstration of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then Paul spends time demonstrating that God shows no partiality, that the Jew and the Greek, the Gentile, and God's chosen people, they're all treated alike. And in the end, all are equally condemned, regardless of their standing with God, regardless of what people they came from, regardless of their own actions. This culminates in a broad blast in chapter three, the high point so far in our study, Romans 3.23. And Paul writes, none is righteous. No, not one. Paul has, Paul has just laid bare the need for everybody for the gospel, Jews and Gentiles alike. But what then if the Jews, God's chosen people, his favored nation, who had what one would think the inside track to getting into heaven, if they were not righteous, then who could be? Who could get that ticket? And that was, this was Alan's message last week, that the work of God to save his people is found in his declaring sinners as justified by faith and not by works, and works being many different things. Where you're from, what you do, the practices, the things you believe even, our works. Christ did what people could, could not do, appease God's wrath and satisfy his sense of justice. Where we are headed next in the passage, passages in the, in, the, in the book following tonight's message is that Paul will start to go into more detail, summarizing the last three chapters, drawing and underlining under the high point of Paul's message. Where we're headed next is that Paul's going to be detailing the saints of the Old Testament in, in chapter four, and he teaches, uh, as he teaches on Abraham, that the plan of God has always been justification by faith. And he's going to demonstrate that um, and show you through history how that's, that's been so, all right? That we all are justified by faith outside of works, including the Jewish nation. So tonight, as we study as we continue on, we're going to talk about what are the effects, what, are the, what is the result of justification by faith on our lives, all right? We will explore in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31, we'll explore how justification by faith affects how we live. First, we'll see a summary of God's saving work and how it affects each one of us. Then we'll see the extent of God's work, and then we'll see the intention of God's plan. What I'm talking about tonight is that God's saving work, which is justification by faith, of course. 
This is the key of how salvation works for us. And in three, we'll see three things that justification by faith replaces justification by works. We'll see justification by faith reaches all nations. And we'll see justification by faith reveals the purposes of the law. So with that, let's turn to Romans chapter three so that we might be able to read 27 through 31. And the apostle Paul writes this. Then what becomes of our boasting that is excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul wraps up his explanation of the justification of faith here. And he is teaching on this point that as each person is saved, not by their own works, that they're saved by faith, not by what they have done or achieved or their position or who they associate with, rather it's solely based on the work of Christ, right? And this justification by faith replaces what everybody was doing before. They thought that it was justification by works, that you had to do certain things, that you had to tithe a certain amount, that you had to only associate with certain people. Those were works, and those were the ways that you would become holy and then enter into the kingdom of God. But what Paul is saying is that none of that matters. What happens to all the works and all the activity that people have done up until this point to get on God's good side? Instead of works, there is a free gift, a gift that is open by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing, is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul asks the question, where then is boasting? And he answers, it is excluded. The question about boasting is not Paul asking about people to, you know, if people are just being really excited about the gospel or about really excited about God or really excited about salvation. Paul is saying boasting is something else. Boasting is what you say to take credit for something that you yourself have no say in or you yourself have no credit for. So credit for works is gone. Therefore, works must also be useless. What boasting is illustrated, boasting is illustrated in another path, in other teaching. And we find this in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Here, the brother of Jesus uses boasting in the context of those who would speak about future plans. And he writes, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James is saying, if you were to have a business and boast with pride, how you have plans about a venture, how you will make a certain profit, how it's a sure thing if we go to Corinth and we sell, you know, we sell them um, whatever widget it is, then you are basically being arrogant and evil to make such plans and acknowledge that, you know what, things are kind of out of your control, that it really is God who's, who's sovereign. It is evil and arrogant to deny that God is sovereign over your activities, just as it is here in a business venture, 
is also true when it comes to salvation. We learn boasting is about taking credit or having pride for something that you have no right to take credit or have pride in because it wasn't rightfully earned. We boast about how our sports teams won championships. That kind of really gets me, right? People get out there, they celebrate, and they scream because uh, whatever sports team, like the Lakers or Dodgers, uh, won a championship. And yet, you know what? What did they really do to contribute to that championship? Screamed really loud, paid money. All right, maybe that's it, right? You bought the ticket you, that, that, that ended up paying Shaq or Kobe or whatever it might be. We boast about the schools we attended and that they are ranked nationally and they're really good schools or whatever it is, even though we never ran the research labs or we were even in the majors that were being ranked, right? We boast about how well our portfolios have performed, even though we have no control over the companies that we invest in or the direction of the economy or whatnot. In all of these examples, we take credit for the success of things we have no control over, and this is boasting. This is the sort of boasting Paul refers to in relationship to salvation, that we should try to take credit for saving ourselves rather than acknowledging that it is all entirely up to God. Now, what kind of works could he be talking about that cannot be claimed for our credit in salvation? I want to touch on a number of different things. And this is kind of the meat of what we're going to be spending tonight. All right. These are the things that people boast about that aren't really true markers of salvation. First off, one cannot boast about our outward behavior. People tell you how well they live, how moral they act, how they have helped many people, how they donate to various charities, how they have been nice to one another. It is certainly true. There are many people out there in this world who live very moral lives, many of them better than you or I, but that is not evidence of saving faith. That is not true salvation. Matthew 19, 16 through 22, records the words of a very moral man who asked Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? On further questioning, the young man cites that he has kept the commandments from his youth. All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus answers him, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. To which the young man goes away sorrowful. He does not accept Jesus' invitation because he had much to lose. So while the young man lived an outwardly righteous life, it was very clear inwardly he worshipped something other than God and took pride in his own works rather than understanding he has, he is, there's nothing in him that was good. Being moral is not enough. For if we say there are good enough people to earn our way into heaven, that belief minimizes the effects of sin and it denies God the glory as being the only one who saves us. Two, the second area, we cannot boast about our theological knowledge. There have been many people who possess intelligence, them, and are able to articulate deep knowledge about God. Certainly not me. But knowledge alone of God does not earn you points with God. Eternal life isn't gained by passing a standardized test. There are many who can quote scripture, but they do, do not live it out. James 2.19, he records this. Even the demons believe, the demons believe Jesus, and yet they shudder. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, deeply religious and knowledgeable of the law, 
themselves did not honor God with their knowledge, but instead used that knowledge to subvert the work of Jesus. In many places, they tried to catch Jesus out in contradictions using their knowledge to just, and then did this in order to justify their own actions. One example of this occurs in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. And there the Sadducees tried to use their knowledge and intelligence to oppose a puzzle to Jesus about an imaginary woman who had several husbands in his life and of which, and then they asked the, the puzzling question of which of these men would the women have be wed to in heaven when the resurrection occurred? Now, I don't want to go about the results of what Jesus did. Jesus obviously answered them, but the goal wasn't to actually understand anything. They used their theological knowledge to try to trip up Christ, to try to render themselves more righteous than him. They tried to render Jesus' authority powerless by discrediting the Lord through their knowledge. That happens today. Liberal scholars um, teach very liberal theology. But do, or do they have saving faith? Perhaps not. Third area. We cannot boast about our church attendance and involvement. People also believe they have salvation because they regularly attend church services. They come regularly to fellowship on Thursday night. They're involved in their local church. They help in their local place of worship. People point to these acts as evidence of these people being saved. They must be saved. They're changed. They're helping out. People point to these things as their own bona fides of being a part of the kingdom of God. Now, many of us here in Praxis will praise and are praised for serving on Sundays, attending small groups, going to Sundays regularly at the expense of watching football, ushering, serving coffee, helping with these ministries and leading worship. And none of these things are wrong. All these are good things. But if we point to these things as evidences of us being saved or that these are the things that which we must do in order to be saved, then we're missing the point. Such service is not evidence of a saving faith necessarily. Such service is not saving faith. It may be the evidence of it, but it is not themselves saving people. I point to one example. Judas himself was very involved in Jesus' early ministry, right? And it could be argued he knew a lot more about Christ than you or I ever will. Yet Judas was clearly not saved. We confuse the act of serving as the thing that makes us clean, all right? Rather than realizing that God makes us clean and the service follows. Christ himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Fourth, four, fourth area, we cannot boast about our knowledge of sin. Knowledge of right and wrong does no good if you yourself are not convinced and driven to the point of actually doing something about it, of repenting of that sin, of seeking Christ. Many people attempt to will their way out of sin as if willpower was the key to salvation. I know what I need to do. I got to get out of this. Others are so lost in their sins and have either given up or are not willing to repent for various reasons. It's too hard. Knowledge of sin is useless if it does not drive us to a place of seeking God and his forgiveness. James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Knowledge of sin itself is not enough to save us. Five, we cannot boast about our sincerity. We cannot boast about our sincerity. Being sincere in your beliefs or having assurance that you are right is not a sign that 
you are saved or that you truly are right. Good intentions and determination do not earn us entrance into eternal life with God. Being earnest is not capable of saving us. There are many in this world who are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. We've all spoken to people who believe that they will enter into heaven because the good ledger outweighs the bad part of the ledger. Because they're very sincere about a particular piece of doctrine that says that perhaps God is too loving to condemn any of us. And they sincerely believe that. But they are wrong. Because these positions clearly misinterpret God's full character. They trash God's truth. They fail to recognize reality. For example, God is good. And he does love his people. And he would like for them to not go to hell. He would like for people to be all reside in eternity with him. But people who claim that God will not condemn them because of this characteristic conveniently leave out God's full character. A part of his character requires that any and all wrongdoing is punished. In short, the truth, the reality of what you trust in matters the most, and not that just that you are sincere. Do not trust in your sincerity. Six, sixth area. We cannot boast about our past religious rights. For the same reasons that a person's involvement in church and volunteerism, volunteerism, can, Paul being a volunteer, um, does not save a person. Actions performed in the past for a person does not guarantee salvation. Just because you've been baptized, just because there was a profession of faith at one point in life, because you went to church when you were young, it's not mean you are guaranteed entrance into God's kingdom. A life that is transformed has to be present. Now, Paul says that boasting in these activities that I've just outlined is excluded. That is, we cannot depend on intelligence, our volunteerism, there we go again, right? Uh, moral living or sincere feelings to save us. When we take credit, when we try to earn our way into heaven, we are prideful. We are stealing glory from God so that we might be seen with favor by others. We want to appear righteous to others so that others might be able to pat us on the back. We boast in ourselves. We minimize God's efforts. So such works are excluded. Paul asks how this is done. By what kind of law, he says. By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. So being justified by faith is a law, a system that takes the place of the law of works. Now, when it comes to salvation, heed the words of 1 Corinthians 1.31, where Paul writes and commands believers to find their wisdom, their righteousness, their sanctification, and redemption in Christ, and let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. We just talked about what you should not do when it comes to boasting in terms of your salvation, how to live your life. Let's look a little bit more positively on the other side. What does boasting in Christ look like? By examining our own personal experience of humility inwardly and examining how humility works itself out, we'll understand what boasting in Christ looks like. It's all about humility. To boast in Christ is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Because when we boast in Christ, we say that Christ is the only one who can save us. When we do that, we minimize ourselves. We take all our actions and efforts out of it. And we realize that we are incapable. That drives us to a place of humility. 
when we are incapable, it, we have to be humble. And that moves us towards God. And it moves us towards God in dependence upon him. Now, let's be honest. Helplessness is not something we like to be. But that's what we have to assume when it comes to salvation. We are helpless. We want to pride ourselves as being capable, as being talented, as being able to do things for ourselves. If only we can will it enough. But none of that will bring us in relationship with God. None of that will save us. How does this work itself out in four areas? Let's see this. First, boasting in the Lord for salvation. First area, boasting in the Lord's salvation. We are commanded to understand and to take heart that our salvation is not in our hands. Matthew 5, 3 records Jesus' word, uh, words of the, about the be, called the Beatitudes. And here Jesus speaks of those who are poor in spirit, who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. In verse 5 of chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, he speaks of those who will hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These are the people that Jesus sees who are saved, the poor in spirit, the hungry. The kinds of people who are opposite of being poor in spirit are those who are rich in spirit. And we might imagine that these are the kinds of people who think they are full of God's righteousness and are blessed and full of morality and no longer feel the urge to, to thirst or hunger after righteousness. Now, this is somewhat of a straw man argument, right? Kind of imagine what this rich in spirit person is, but it helps us understand that the Beatitudes are important to Christian life, that the Beatitudes reflect a humility, that they're in opposition to our pride. We come before God as not like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 9 through 14, where we come before God as the tax gatherer. The Pharisee said this, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector over here. This is a man who's rich in spirit. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a man who is poor in spirit. Jesus said about these two men, I tell you, the man who went down to his, this man went down to his house, justified the tax gatherer rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, as an aside, you may be wondering, do I have to go around beating myself up constantly? No. Because you know what? That's just another form of, of, of pride. It's self-absorption. It's selfishness. To constantly be focusing on yourself and beating yourself up. It's just motivated in a different dimension. Righteousness, righteous confidence comes with confidence in the Lord, meaning that we do our best and we leave everything to God. If we fail, we trust in God's, God has sovereign provision for what will happen. If we succeed, we take no credit and leave it to God. Secondary, number two, boasting in the Lord with hope, boasting in the Lord with hope. Now, on one hand, we are humbled by our inability, but that inability should give us hope. And you're like, okay. So I'm helpless. What does that mean? We have hope because we, ha we can't do anything on our own. We need to depend not on our feeble attempts, but entirely on God. To enter heaven, we can't buy the ticket. The ticket is given to us. And that should give us hope because it is not up to us. If it were up to me to save myself, it would be a terrible, terrible life. It would be constant highs because I did something really good. 
and followed by constant lows. There'll be a constant wavering um, just because I, I, one day I'd be saved, the next day I wouldn't, depending on how I performed. But we have hope because none of that matters in a sense. When the matter is left to God, we know it will be accomplished because he will not fail us. Number three, third area, boasting in the Lord with repentance. Boasting in the Lord with repentance. We are commanded to humble ourselves that our actions um, oftentimes will require us to go to God and ask for forgiveness. However, um, we have to understand that whatever actions we do, even if they're good actions, are stained with sin. And we need to always be on guard with, for this. We always need to be on guard to repent of our, um, our, our wicked selves. Now, as an example, we give money to church or we provide food to somebody who is less fortunate and we immediately feel a glow of satisfaction. Well, by Jove, I've done something, I've done something good today, which then hopefully you should recognize to be a, have a tint of pride, a tinge of pride there. Perhaps even a temptation to feel like you've earned um, a, a little bit more of God's favor, a step closer to heaven. Then we realize that sinning with such pride, and we have to repent of that, which leads us to feel like we've accomplished something because now I've repented of something bad. And then I feel, wait, I've just got pride because I've just repented, you know, and so on, so on, right? So it goes ad, ad infinitum, right? Now, I'm not saying, okay, again, this is kind of a straw man argument. Um, I'm not saying we should live constantly flogging ourselves as if the punishment brought about by such obsession makes us better people, okay? But what I'm trying to encourage is a deep suspicion of ourselves and our motives that is almost second nature, a deep suspicion of ourselves and our motives that is almost second nature. There's a recognition that we are so deeply stained with selfish motivations and that sin will affect everything that we do, even the good stuff. Now, let us not leave here thinking we need to keep running in that circle of constantly doubting every single thing. I think the point is for us to take deeply that truth in Romans 3.23, there are none righteous, not even one. The moment we start to feel pride in accomplishing a good work is the moment we must banish that thought as if we had anything to do with making it happen. That moment must instead be turned towards God with gratefulness and thankfulness that he has brought that about in your life. And then move on. God transforms us, acknowledge that, move on, do not take pride. Broken and softened this way with that healthy suspicion, God fashions and molds us and puts us in a place where we can continue to grow and change and do his work. Boasting in Christ means in repentance, we take seriously the words of the prophet Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Fourth area. We ought to be boasting in the Lord through prayer. Prayer is a tangible way of expressing our humility before our Lord. And humble people pray because they understand they need God. Humble people pray because they understand that God is the only way that their prayers can be answered. God is the only way that they can actually accomplish anything that God is the only true answer to all of life's problems. Jesus himself is our example of somebody who boasts in the Lord through prayer, that he had a deep dependence upon the Father, and prayer was part of that dependence. At the start of his ministry, as, a, as, as the Spirit of God descended from heaven, 
Jesus was praying and baptizing at that moment, Luke chapter 3, verse 21. At the end of his ministry, just as he was about to be arrested, he was arrested in a garden of Gethsemane where he was praying desperately. Jesus himself also instituted the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. John 17, our Sunday's messages for the last month or so from Pastor Kim, spoke on the high priestly prayer of Christ, that as he was about to approach um, the hour of his coming, the hour of the reason for his coming, he prayed for his, for his disciples and for the people. From the beginning to the end, Christ was dependent upon the Father, and he depended upon him through prayer. Let me ask you, when you are confronted with difficulties, uncomfortable circumstances, or uncertain um, decisions, do you primarily pray for God's wisdom, or do you primarily depend on your own wisdom to solve the problem yourself? The answer to this question tells us where you place your dependence, where you boast. Now, as we clean up our first point tonight, we'll see what justification by faith rules out. It rules out every kind of work that might allow that we might be able to boast in to earn our way into eternity. We cannot boast in morality. We cannot boast in our religious involvement. We cannot boast in our intelligence or knowledge. We cannot even boast in our sincerity. Instead, what we have seen inwardly, justification by faith will mean it should drive us to a place of deep humility. That should be the foundation of how we receive and perceive salvation. Now, that's a lot for two verses, right? You're like, oh, good Lord, we've got another four. Well, the last part of our message is going to go a little bit quicker. Justification by faith is a rich truth, right? And we have unpacked a lot of it. Now, it will have implications how we approach our relationship with God. What we'll see next is it has implications for how it impacts our relationship with others. Justification by faith reaches all nations, reaches all nations. Well, we should know that such a universal gospel um, motivates our mission and evangelism. We should also, it also has deep implications on our own relationships with one another among unbelievers and unbelievers alike. Now, remember, Paul ended up verse 28 stating how justification by faith outside of works, um, as described by the Mosaic law, um, in the context of the priest, okay. Paul says this in verse 29. All right, so 28 finishes up justification by faith outside exclusive of the, the law, the Mosaic law, right? Totally by faith. Um, in verse 29, then he says, okay, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So now he turns to go, okay. God is, one, God is the God of all people. Through God's act of declaring people righteous, not by the law, but by, through Christ, by faith, Paul is saying the primary means of people coming to relationship with him is no longer the law, right? Um, it is faith that is not reserved to only one group, but overall to all of God's children. Now, let's talk about this relationship amongst God's people, the, the favored people and the unfavored people, so to speak, right? The Jews and the Gentiles. Genesis 12 record, records the Lord's call to Abraham, the father of all Jews. 
And he says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Salvation is open to all, not just to select few, but it's open to all who need God. In the Old Testament, salvation wasn't just reserved just for the Jews. There were, though, we think of Ruth, that who, although she was not Jewish, was deemed righteous and faithful. And it is through Ruth that Jesus himself descended. We also think of Rahab, Joshua chapter 6, who was also deemed righteous for protecting God's people. The Jewish people were not just to be the only ones saved. As we understand from Genesis chapter 12, God's intention was that through the Jewish nations, the whole earth would be blessed. They were just kind of like their special people who would do, be that channel of blessing to the rest of the earth. Now, you, church, are to be a blessing to those around you in your apartments, in your home, and your offices, in your exercise clubs, where you shop, out on the road, wherever it might be. You are to be a blessing to all the earth. Now, we bless people by preaching to them the gospel, right? Pretty straightforward. But something else I want to talk about tonight, I want to focus on, is that we should see people not as a means for us to be blessed, but as a people to bless. God commands the church, commands you and I to see people as valuable to him and not instruments to our own ends. We are asked to love his children just as he would love his children. Let's face it. There's people in this fellowship, maybe you're even sitting next to some, somebody like that, um, in your circle, in your friends, at work, in your cube farm, in your family, that you, it's hard to be around sometimes. They take too much energy. They aren't cool enough or that they are difficult to talk to. Or maybe they're the people in your call center that you're negotiating with in order to uh, get um, some bill sorted out or the credit applied. Or perhaps it's the driver in the lane next to you who needs to get off their freeway and you're getting irritated at. These are all attitudes focused on the question, what advantage do I get in relating to this person? Right? Such a question is driven by selfishness, by a lack of valuing people as God values them. Instead, we are to take to heart the, that the energy and time spent relating to such people around us is good, valuable work. And is in fact, actually the point of what we ought to be doing. That the purposes of God is to use you to bless others and not to enrich and bless yourself. What's getting in the way of you being a blessing to other people? Is it the time that you want to have for yourself? The me time, right? Is it not wanting to get involved because it's difficult and messy and it's actually emotionally really difficult to hear everybody's problems, Right? We have to be able, willing to wade in and get messy. So we are called to, because of justification by faith, 
is a call to all nations. That means all people are to be um, are are equal in God's eyes and are all to be saved. We ourselves do not ex- consider ourselves exclusive because we've been called first. Okay, we are to be blessings um, to the nations. All right. Now we'll just quickly move into the last verse tonight, uh, which introduces uh, in Romans chapter three verse thirty one. Uh, Paul's next line of reasoning in the letter, it really is um, the next verse in, 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 this, in his verse, um, justification by faith reveals the purposes of the law. Paul asks this, he says, um, do we then overthrow the law because that justification by faith is that replaces justification by works? Do we then overthrow the law that up until now we've been really relying on to save ourselves? Do we overthrow this law by faith? By no means, we uphold it. Now, I'm not going to go into that because we're going to spend the next few chapters in Romans to unpack all of that, all right? But I just want to simply say this. The Old Testament law was, is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, right? Now you're going, all right, but does it change things so much so? I mean, is it a radically different thing? Is it something new? All I want to say is this, that God did not wake up one morning with one of those shower-induced aha moments and go, you know what? I think I'm going to do justification by faith today. It has been his intention all along that faith will save. And in fact, we will see that right after this in this next chapter. The purposes of the law is to reveal to people that they need God, that they can't save themselves. Now, certain requirements of the law, such as being kosher or having to offer like goats and doves as sacrifices may not hold but there is intention behind those acts. We need to separate ourselves very visibly, not just through the way way we eat, from the world to demonstrate that we are God's people. We are to sacrifice and give up, not just our material things, but our time, our energies, our efforts, who we are in identity, because that demonstrates the worth of God. Christianity arises from within a Jewish culture is not something new but it's a fulfillment of eternal truths. Again, God isn't making this up as he, go along, as he goes along. He's not doing the ultimate act of, um, of um, improv. It has always been his intention. Justification by faith is the fulfillment of God's purposes throughout of all eternity. And we will pick that up as we finish Romans back in the fall. At the end of all this tonight, we've discovered in this short passage We've explored God's free gift of salvation through justification by faith and those implications of that doctrine on how we understand our lives, how we understand our salvation, how we understand what we do here at work. I mean, excuse me, at church, (laughs) at work, Um, and at work, right? Uh, We live lives not marked with a frenetic emotional roller coaster of ups and downs as we win our salvation, we then lose it. It's not a football game. No, instead, our inward soul must reflect a deep dependence upon God, which is required, which is the re- what faith is. And that will bring us into relationship with God. And this must be reflected in all aspects of our walks with God. We bring a nothing of value to him, but instead we are humble and thankful and joyful that he is able to produce in us something of value. In another area, our justification by faith alone offers salvation for all who come to him, and it is not just reserved to a select few. We are not a country club. We saw all along that the Lord intended for the children of Abraham and the church 
as the spiritual descendants of Abram to be a blessing to many nations. Such a charge must be lived out in our relationships around us as we value people as God's values them. Now, in all these things, we boast not in ourselves. We boast in the God who has accomplished what we ourselves could not do on our own. He has done what we would consider impossible. For it is through one man to die for the sins of many, and that one man's death saved and transformed each one of us. Let's not go, let's go from here, transformed by that miracle, demonstrating the power of God, working through us at church and the people around us, wherever we might be. So thank you. Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you just for this evening. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to press upon us your truth. Humble us that we might be able to see that it is not us doing all things, but it is you. Help us have a healthy suspicion of who we are, um, but not wallow in it and be able to really be, see that we are strong because of what you do, not because of what we, how we do it. We thank you. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.